invite you again to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, page 961, towards the back of your Bible, if you're using a Bible that's provided for you. It really helps to be able to look along um, at the text of Scripture as as we look through this passage this morning. Uh, We're just going to look at verses 35 to 41 today. Um, This is a pretty... Uh, On the surface, it's a pretty complex passage. Uh, We're dealing with the resurrection, and this is a mystery uh, that we're not going to fully comprehend everything that there is to know about the coming resurrection, Uh, but Paul gives us some, some really good things to understand when it comes through thinking through Christ's resurrection, or uh, the resurrection of the saints. And we've seen so far in 1 Corinthians 15, we've seen that the hope of the gospel is, again, it's unlike any other hope in life. Verses 1 to 11, the hope of the gospel is rooted in Christ. Verses 12 to 19, the hope of the gospel, it is under attack. Satan would love to steal our hope, to steal our joy from us. We saw in verses 20 to 28, the hope of the gospel, even though it's under attack, it is unshakable. Uh, Jesus wins. He's already secured the victory. And then we saw last week in verses 29 to 34, the hope of the gospel, it should awaken us. Why are we doing the things we're doing? We need to, as verse 34 says, wake up from our drunken stupor. Do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. See, Paul has made it clear that the truth truth of the gospel, it rises or falls on Christ's resurrection. If Christ has been raised, then so will his followers be raised. But this reality, this hope, or this theological truth of of our resurrection in light of Christ's resurrection, it's really difficult to understand when we think of it. I mean, for instance, I remember um, my first grandparent uh, died when I was only 10 years old. He uh, died of a brain tumor. And um, I remember looking at my grandfather's body in that casket uh, as, as a 10-year-old boy, and just thinking of, of okay, this body, it's, a, it's an empty shell, and, and he's going to, uh, this isn't the end, but would that body really rise again, this body that looks so lifeless, so dead? And, and, if, and if that's so, that, that he will rise again, what is that going to look like? I mean, it can boggle the human mind, can it? Have you ever sat and thought about it? Thought about a, a, a loved one who is a believer that has passed away? It's amazing how full of life the human body is as we're sitting here alive, right? At least physically, we're alive. And if one of us was to pass away, it's, it's just amazing to me uh, uh, doing funerals and attending funerals of just how lifeless 
that body that once was so full of life now looks. What does the resurrection look like? And then if you really want to boggle your mind, what about all of those people? Think of sailors back in the day. uh, They're lost at sea, you know, eaten by fish. What about when the body turns to dust after it's decayed for years and years and years? What about those who have, who have been mutilated or, or killed in combat and their bodies are, are pretty much non-existent? What would a resurrection look like for, that in, for that, those individuals? In the Corinthian culture, the idea of a resurrected body, it was unthinkable. In fact, uh, you might even say it was detestable. Yet what we have to realize, and what 1 Corinthians has told us up to this point, is that death does not have the final say. Amen? How many of you have, uh, have, a, have a loved one, uh, a family member, a good friend who has passed away even within the past five years? And I won't say how many of those individuals were believers, but we know that in Christ, death does not have the final say. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is not the end. And we see the hope of the gospel when it comes to death. Brings us to truth and reality number five about the hope of the gospel in verses 35 to 49. That the hope of the gospel, it is an imperishable promise. This promise of hope in the gospel, the promise of what Jesus has done for us, that he has died, that he has been raised from the dead in the same power that raised Christ from the dead, has already made us alive spiritually and one day will raise our bodies. This is an imperishable promise that not even death can overcome. So as we have, have uh, last week, we kind of, uh, Paul in verses 20 to 28, he gives theological grounding to the resurrection, uh, both of Christ and of his people, And then in verse 29 to 34, he starts to talk about, now rationally, let's think about this in our daily living. Here's what we should be believing. Are we living out what we're believing? In verses 35 to 49, Paul continues to show the reality, the validity of the resurrection. That this is not only something to be believed, it is something to be rationally embraced. So as we look at the hope of the gospel being an imperishable promise, we are going to look at it from two different points that build on each other. Verses 35 to 41 this morning, we're going to look at some general truths that point us to resurrection reality. General truths from the creation order. And then in verses 42 to 49, we are going to look at the great hope of the the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, because of 
the new Adam. Well, we've already discussed before as Paul has brought up the old Adam versus the new Adam. We're once again going to see that the new Adam has brought resurrection to his people. We're going to see once again that if we are going to be hope-filled Christians, if we're going to be Christians that aren't tossed and turned, then, it, then it's going to mean that we are clinging to what truly matters. And if the gospel is a hope-filled message, it is to be producing hope in us. So the question we're going to ask today, are you embracing that hope? Let's pray. Father, as we begin this morning, Lord, we're looking at a difficult passage in many ways of following what Paul is saying. God, I pray that you would open the, the eyes of our understanding. Lord, Scripture is understood and discerned uh, through the enlightening, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask for you to do that. Father, I pray for those who do not have the hope of eternal life. God, that you would be at work in their hearts this morning. Guide us, Lord. Remind us once again of the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to begin by looking at some general truths this morning in verses 35 to 41. In fact, as one individual says, the analogies that Paul gives draw from ordinary experience and offer a way to understand how bodily resurrection is possible. Now again, we're never going to understand everything, but we're going to try to follow here Paul's teaching of what he's saying to give validity to the fact that the dead will be raised, those who are in Christ. The first general truth that I want to give you, I want to read verses 35 to 36. Paul now, in transitioning, he says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So you can kind of tell from verse 35 a little bit of a transition here in thought. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now I just want to stop there for a moment. Paul's going to obviously continue his argument. But I want to just draw out a general truth here, general truth number one. And that's simply this, that death is not the end. Death is not the end for a believer or an unbeliever. A believer will, either, uh, a believer will spend an eternity in a resurrected body with the Lord forevermore, but the Bible also teaches that those that are without Christ will have a resurrected body in hell forever. Death is not the end. And in verse 35, Paul wants to address an objection to the resurrection. Now, this was a common method of 
argumentation or of debate in Greek-Roman culture. It was to raise a question on one's own in order to answer the objection that would be in many people's minds. So someone is not verbally asking Paul this. He's raising this question that he knows many within the Corinthian church, these false teachers, would be expressing. And really, there's two questions here, but they build on each other. So it's kind of like one question that's layered on top of another that's asking the same thing. The first question is, how are the dead raised? You could reword this question a little bit to say, how or in what way, in what manner could the dead possibly be raised? Remember, the idea of a bodily resurrection was, it was incomprehensible in, in, in Greco-Roman culture of the day. In fact, one individual says this, resurrection in the flesh appeared a startling, distasteful idea that was at odds with everyone that passed for wisdom among the educated Anyone that was considered educated, anyone that was considered rational, reasonable in Greek culture would not say that there was a resurrection of the dead. And here the question is, how, in what manner could the dead possibly be raised? Now we already know if you look ahead, uh, or if you look backwards, verse 21 and 22, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So we know that, that uh, resurrection life comes through Jesus. But that didn't answer the question for these individuals, for, these, for those in verse 12 the sum, some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead. It didn't answer the question, okay, how is that going to come about? And then building on that, they ask a second question, with what kind of body do they come? So the second question is, what does this resurrected body in essence look like? What kind of a body is it? Now I would venture to say we've all had those questions, right? But what we have to understand is that these questions were not being raised by those truly seeking to know the truth. These questions were being raised with an intent to undermine what Paul was saying, not to comprehend what Paul was saying. So in verse 35, Paul poses the objection that the sum in the Corinthian church would have And then in verse 36, he wants to reorient the church to the truth. And how does he begin reorienting the church to the truth? He addresses these type of people, the scorners, the mockers. And in verse 36, he addresses them, you foolish person. You foolish person. Here Paul is exposing the character of these false teachers. These questions were not being raised again by those truly seeking to know the truth. In fact, the character of these individuals 
is that their heart was set against God. They are the ones of verse 34 that, that the church needed to be awakened, that they needed to understand in verse um, 33 that bad company ruins good morals. These are the individuals in verse 34 that have no knowledge of God. These were the ones in verse 15 that were truly the ones who were misrepresenting God. Remember, the hope of the gospel is under attack. And if we are listening to outside voices or even though that we talked about that inner lawyer voice, that speaks contrary to the truth of the gospel, are we going to identify with it and associate with those voices, or are we going to say, no, I am going to cling to truth. Psalm 14 reminds me here of this verse where it says, you foolish person. Psalm 14, verse 1, the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable, abominable deeds. There is none who does good. You see, in this, this you foolish person, one word in the Greek, in one word, Paul is exposing the character of those who would like to cast doubt on the reality of the resurrection. And listen, it doesn't matter the credentials of these individuals. It doesn't matter how highly respected they are in the community. It doesn't matter how much money they have. None of those things ultimately matter. What matters is the heart. And those that would try to sway people away from the truth of the gospel are not the people that God's people must be keeping close company with. Maybe you need to ask yourself, is one of the reasons you are struggling in your faith, you're struggling in your Christian life, because you are doing what we ended talking about in verse 33 and 34. You are surrounding yourself with influences that are appointing you away from the reality of the gospel. And it is not unloving to have to say to individuals, I love you, I want to, if you are open, I want to share my faith with you, but I'm going to have to not be as closely associated with you because you are seeking to go against my faith. The character here, Paul points out before he ever then explains anything further. But Paul doesn't end there. He says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So we not only see here as Paul's reorienting these, these uh, Christian believers to the truth, He's not only addressing the character of the ones they're tempted to listen to, but he's also now presenting them the order of nature itself. And he's going to give, from now to the end of verse 41, he's going to give a lot of 
nature examples. And here he says, what you sow, or um, verse 36, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. And he's going to be talking about some plants. Now, I'm not a uh, farmer. I'm not good with plants. I'm not good with growing things. Rachel kind of enjoys doing that. But I can at least talk about these concepts with you. Paul uses here this word sowing. This word sowing being associated with death. In fact, it's used six times in verses 35 to 39. When you think of sowing a seed in the ground, um, you think of putting it in the dirt. What, what a perfect analogy of death. It implies a burying in the ground. And as we're going to see, the seed itself, it seems lifeless. It seems, it seems dead. It's useless. Jesus himself used a similar analogy in John chapter 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The very principle of sowing implies that one thing is going to be changed to another thing. Unless, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. That term life is the end result, the product of the sowing. That life springs from the apparent dead seed. There is something more than just death. Now we know uh, scientifically, horticulturally speaking, that a seed is not dead. A seed is very alive. And, and Paul's not trying to give a horticultural lesson here. He's talking about what seems to be true. A seed seems dead. But folks, death is not the end. I want to give you a second general lesson here if death is not the end then what paul is teaching is that what is sown is just the beginning in verse 37 let's talk more about the seed here and what you sow again take the seed you're burying it in the ground what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So let's just stop there. Paul says at the beginning of verse 37, what you see is not what will be. What Paul is seeking to do is he's seeking to get our minds when we think of the resurrection, we need to get our minds around this one key word called transformation. That a seed is put in the ground in one way and out comes something else. I like what, what uh, one individual says concerning the difference between Paul's analogy with the seed versus 
making an analogy with something like a leaf in the fall. Uh, It'll be on the overhead here with you. The afterlife to which Christians ultimately look forward to is not like the experience of a leaf. After it has died and fallen from a tree only to rot away. But more like the experience of a seed that germinates and then enters into a flourishing life of color and beauty to which its previous existence is hardly capable of being compared. What you see is not what will be. I also want to draw your attention that in verse 37, this seed is compared to as a body. What you sow is not the body that is to be. Paul here is naturally meaning to show the analogy of the seed to the human body. In other words, he's saying, do not look at the body that has been buried, whether that was under the ground or during, whether that was in a cave, do not look at that body as a picture of what will be. It's going to be something different. It's going to be similar yet different. Another way to say that is there's going to be continuity. There's going to be elements of sameness, but discontinuity. Elements that are very different. And Paul's going to unpack that as we go. How is this seed, this body, this seed body described? It's described here as a bare kernel. This is a picture of lowliness, barrenness of the seed. That word barren is, in the Greek, it's the word naked. You could say a naked kernel. Now Paul is going to, as we're going to be seeing this morning, he is going to be drawing from Genesis language, from Genesis 1 and 2. And I don't think it's an accident that he uses this word bare kernel here. That word naked is not an accident in the context of Paul setting things up in Genesis and then verses 42 to 49 that we'll see next week talking about Adam. He is already, Paul is already giving us a hint as he's talking about nature about the fallenness, the sinfulness of the human body. You remember Genesis 3, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They saw that they were what? Naked. Paul is talking here about the body under the dominion of this old creation. The body under the dominion of sin. And he says here that what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel or a naked kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. I have a picture on the, on the screen for you of a kernel of wheat. There's a bare kernel. Looks lifeless, looks dead, serves no purpose unless you like to chew on hard things. How many of you like to chew on popcorn seeds? I like to chew on the ones that are kind of like a little bit popped, but not fully. I mean, the, the ones that are fully not will just break your teeth. Um, 
But it, it looks like those seeds, they're just useless. But what happens? The farmer plants those wheat seeds into the ground and out reaps a harvest. Now, does that seed resemble the harvest here? I would say no. I mean, imagine if you just had just a bunch of seeds just like it on stalks. It still wouldn't accomplish much, would it? But what was sown, there is continuity, there is sameness in the fact that as we're going to see, the wheat seed brought forth wheat. But there is complete discontinuity, difference, in that what is now reaped is completely different than what was sown. You get that? In verse 38, Paul continues and says, But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. What we see here is this idea of, again, transformation. God produces something new, get this, according to his desire. It is God who wills to bring forth a harvest from the seed. Verse 38, God gives it a body as he has chosen. Or another word, way to translate that word uh, is as he has desired. In God's plan, in God's sovereign purposes, God has ordained for that wheat seed, in this instance, to bring forth great wheat. For the seed to look one way and then to harvest a completely different way. And God has done this according to his own design, according to his own desire, according to his own purposes. As we look, as we continue reading past, we're going to look at different analogies in God's creation. Right now we're talking about seeds, but it's this, you know, you plant an apple seed, you're going to be really surprised if a peach tree starts growing, right? You plant and you plant that little tiny dead-looking seed and you know, you eat an apple, you can get four three or four of them out of there at a time. And you look at that dead seed in anticipation of the, the luscious, great tree that that seed could become. You know when you plant the apple seed that if it is indeed going to grow, depending on how well of a cultural, uh, um, what's the word? Gardener, Okay. I can't say farmer. I mean, farmers have apple trees, but, you know, maybe. Uh, depending on what type of a gardener, if it grows, <laughs> you know it's going to be an apple tree, right? That's according to God's purpose. And we're going to see as Paul builds his argument that God has an entirely different design for the heavenly glorified body 
than what we are currently experiencing. God produces something new according to his desire. It's his prerogative. He is the actor here. As one person said, if God can produce such amazing plants from seeds, then he can certainly give human beings a new body. The God who can cause such wondrous plants to emerge from seeds is able to raise the dead. Ouch to these false teachers. But then we also see in verse 38 that God produces something new according to his established order. God has chosen to give it a body, whether it's uh, to give this seed a body as he has chosen. And then it says, and to each kind of its, and to each kind of seed its own body. So again, you're not planting an apple tree expecting a pear tree. This word kind here, again, takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2. I like what one individual says, in many ways, the last things will be like the first things, only better. What does Genesis 1, verses 11 and 12 say? God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each, and here's the term, according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So we see that God has sovereignly designed creation to work, creation to flourish. And the same God that raised again Christ from the dead is going to raise us from the dead. So as we look at this analogy of of seeds and plants, we see that the principle number one, death is not the end, Even creation gives us hints of that. I mean, even as we approach spring season, after uh, the winter where all of the leaves fall off and and, and the, the grass dies and all of that, what happens? You start to see life. You start to see buds. Death is not the end. Second principle from creation, what is sown is just the beginning. As we sow, we see miraculous things happen. And principle number three from creation, one glory differs from another. Let's look at verses 39, the beginning of verse 40. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish, And I just want to read the beginning phrase of verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. What we see here is Paul says there are a variety of kinds. The kinds that Genesis 1 and 2 is talking about. And he talks about humans. He talks about animals. And he talks about heavenly bodies. If you want to... uh, Put a marker there. You can write in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 31. 
What is interesting here is that Paul is going through creation in reverse order. He starts in day six with with the greatest part of God's creation, which is people. And he says in verse 39, not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans. Human is the apex of God's creation, day six. And then he says, another for animals. Animals were also created on day six. Another for birds on day five. And then he says, another for fish. And then he begins to unpack the heavenly bodies, which is day four. Each are unique and created by God according to his purposes. Verse 38. God's creative purpose, as one individual says, he apportions different bodies suitable to their own habitat. So he's created humanity as the crown of his creation with certain bodies. He's given animals certain bodies. He's given birds certain bodies to be able to fly through the air. He's given fish certain bodies to be able to, to exist in the water. And then he gives a contrast at the beginning of verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. So, so all of what we read in verse 39 would be under the category of an earthly body. So there are varieties of kinds. And then as we continue reading, we see that there are varieties of glory that comes from these kinds. In the middle of verse 40, he says, But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. So the heavenly glory of the bodies that we'll, uh, that we'll read of in verse 41, the heavenly bodies, they showcase one certain type of glory. And, and, and they differ even among the heavenly bodies in what glory they show forth. The animals, the fish, people, we showcase another type of glory. But all of it gives glory to God. Psalm 50 verse 6, let every living creature praise the Lord, shout praises to the Lord. In Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. This brings back recollection on the fourth day of creation, Genesis 1.16, where God says, God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. It's so interesting to know as we we look at telescopes and as we know from, from astronomy that there are even differing types of glories among the stars. Are there not? So Paul is giving these analogies that There are kinds. In those kinds, they they manifest different types of glory. 
So as we begin to close today, I want to ask you and I want to talk about what is Paul's point up to this point? And we're going we're gonna to continue Paul's argument in verses 42 to 49, so it's not entirely fair of us to, to stop here because it's like stopping somebody mid-sentence. But up to this point, what is Paul's point? Starting from being more, maybe more general to more specific, first of all, we see that there is order and variety to all of God's creation. There's order. Various kinds of created things each have a body fitted for that kind. Various kinds of created things each have a body fitted for that kind. We also see not only order, but we see variety. That each kind has a different body from another kind which differs in the glory that is displayed. So you cannot expect the sun to look like a person, right? To show the same type of glory. The sun does not show the same type of glory that a human does. Now, I've been accused many times to have the sun glare that, that glares people's head on the top of, uh, or glares people's eyes on the top of my head. But that's not the sun, right? There is order and variety to all of God's creation. Now, as we get more specific, we see also that the resurrected body must be seen as a kind of body that differs in glory from that which preceded it. This is where Paul is starting to want to get us thinking that he's really going to be taking us to in verses 42 to 49. It is indeed a kind of body. And just like the wheat seed is completely different than the, the harvest, the sheaves of wheat, there, there's continuity in that, right? The wheat seed now fully manifested, fully complete. But there's also great discontinuity because you wouldn't see the wheat seed and say, what a beautiful harvest. What a beautiful bunch of wheat from which we are going to be able to make things. So it is with the resurrected body. The resurrected body is going to be an entirely different type of glory than the body we now possess. There will be continuity. Adam Pereira will not stop being Adam Pereira. And some of this, as we will see, we can't fully understand. We will never have all of the answers to but what Paul is showing us is this is not, like the false teachers are saying, so ridiculous to believe. Because even creation right now is echoing this reality. As one individual, Mark Taylor, says, 
Resurrection does not entail the reanimation of dead corpses, but rather the transformation of perishable bodies. What we are looking at and what we will see next week is that we are looking at two different kinds. One kind, this body that we can move our fingers and move our legs and have to go to the doctor this week, maybe some of you, and, and are concerned with family members with health issues or health issues yourself. This kind of body is characterized by the old creation. And what Paul says is that we cannot determine the validity of the resurrection based on what we see here or even based on what we bury in the ground. Because there is coming another body that is no longer characterized by the old creation but by the new creation. It is a body that images, as verse 49 will show us, the man of heaven. The first body we will see next week is characterized by having its origins being constructed by God, formed by God from the dust of the ground. However, the new creation body, it is a heavenly body. We'll talk about what a spiritual body means next week. It is a body that is animated, that is given life by the Holy Spirit himself. So as we conclude here, the hope that we have is that we hold, folks, so great a salvation. Folks, we cannot begin to imagine the things that the Lord has in store for his children. And if we just had eyes to glimpse eternity, how frivolous and minor would these temporary things be that we are enduring now? How our perspective would want to move towards living in light of eternity and not living in light of being dictated by the cares and concerns of this world. You see, creation itself, God has ordained creation itself, even fallen creation, to echo the hope of what is to come, even when it comes to a simple seed. Even when it comes to seeing the glory of looking up at the stars or at the planets or at the glory of creation, to know that all of this is just a taste of a better kind and a better glory that's coming. 